the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. It's August 17th, 2016. I'm Michael Odemark, one of the show's producers. The countdown to the 54th New York Film Festival is well underway. Last week, we announced this year's main slate, featuring 25 films that represent the best in world cinema, with new films from acclaimed directors like Pedro Almodovar, Kelly Reichardt, and Jim Jarmusch. But the main slate represents only a portion of the 17-day festival. And this week, we unveiled the lineup for one of our most adventurous sidebars, Convergence. Convergence brings together preeminent innovators in the exciting world of immersive storytelling. From virtual reality to participatory events and installations, the section represents some of the festival's most unique and cutting-edge programming. A highlight from this year's lineup is a panel called The State of the Interactive Art featuring Story Code's Mike Knowlton, interactive theater director Michael Rao, and filmmaker Ram Devineni. Story Code is a rapidly growing community of creative professionals exploring interactive storytelling. Last year's Convergence featured an event called Immersive Storytelling Goes Global, a live Story Code dispatch, which brought together Story Code chapter organizers to share happenings and breakthroughs from around the country and the world. As we anticipate the fifth edition of NYFF Convergence this fall, we'll look back at this highlight from last year. To learn more about this program, head to filmlink.org NYFF. Let's go now to Immersive Storytelling Goes Global from the 53rd New York Film Festival. My name is Mike Knowlton. I co-founded StoryCode uh, here in New York with Ina Abiodun, who's in the audience, I believe. Hi, Ina. Um, and the goal of our uh, discussion here is we wanted to um, uh, bring uh, fellow chapter heads of Story Code chapters across the country um, together to have a conversation about what's happening in immersive media and discuss trends, um, interesting and innovative projects that have come through our chapters, and try and um, talk about what's going on and what's happening. Um, so that's really the goal here. And um, you know, just to take a step back, uh, the idea behind StoryCode is it's uh, basically an open source organization. It's really, we think of it as more of a movement, and it's really geared towards makers. It's about creators, immersive media creators. And so um, I was joking with Michael here about, wow, we've got to follow up that project that we just saw, which was The Deeper They Bury Me, which was uh, an incredibly moving, personal, immersive experience. And those types of projects are the types of projects that our members uh, aim to create and are creating uh, every day, and it's really inspirational to see that type of work. Um, so as a group, we really like to support, our aim is to support those types of creators, and we do that in many different ways. So um, without further ado, I'll introduce our awesome panel. So first off, we have Michael Epstein, who is from uh, StoryCode San Francisco. Um, uh, Michael is the founder and creator of Walking Meet, Walking Cinema. Walking Cinema, which creates cinema, cinematic experiences for uh, mobile apps. Next up, we have Diliana Alexander, who's from Miami. She runs the Story Code Miami uh, chapter, and also uh, programs and founded Filmgate Miami, Interactive. Filmgate Interactive, um, which is a great um, it's a great immersive conference that happens in February. Uh, what, when is it this year? February twentieth to twenty eighth. February twentieth to twenty eighth. It's in Miami Beach, and. Uh, <laughs> It's, it's a really great festival that supports um, performance and creators as well. Um, if you're a creator and you have a project to submit, you should definitely 
consider submitting it to FilmGate. It's awesome. Next up, we have Tanya Leal Soto. Uh, Tanya is from uh, Story Code Los Angeles. So she'll be able to give us a really good kind of Hollywood perspective, <laughs> hopefully. Um, uh, uh, fun fact about Tanya, she's a Muppeteer. <laughs> And lastly, we have Kelly Anderson, who um, runs the Story Code Washington, D.C. chapter. So um, thank you for our panelists for joining us. So I'll first kind of ask everyone to just talk a, a little bit about the chapter that they run and the kind of personality that you have in your, in your chapter. So we'll start with Michael. Yeah, so I'm in San Francisco. I would say the personality um, mixes between quite a few high-tech people who are interested in coding or coming from you know, a VR background, virtual reality is very big. Um, but also there's you know, a strong analog movement, uh, mixing digital media with physical environments seems to be a hallmark of many of the projects that we're seeing come through the San Francisco chapter. And I have no idea how to explain that. I would take a guess that we have a beautiful city. <laughs> and so people want to get out with their projects and experience something physical alongside the, uh, the digital. Deliana? Uh, so as you know, uh, Miami is the capital of South America, even though it is <laughs> in the US. So that uh, definitely informs the chapter because um, it's a bilingual city. Everybody speaks Spanish or English, and if they don't, they're learning Spanish or English. Um, and uh, so there's a lot of mixture between South Central and South America and the Caribbean and the Southeastern US. Um, and in addition, uh, it's coming up as a tech center as well. It's not San, San Francisco, obviously. Um, but there's a lot of tech companies that are opening uh, chapters there. Um, and uh, our challenge is to put the tech people with the creators because there's an independent film community and that we're not mixing. And that's where StoryCode became a facilitator of combining these two um, kind of sides of the interactive and immersive project. Yeah, and that's something that we're always trying to do is to kind of bring storytellers and technologists um, uh, closer together earlier in the process of a project so that it's not the storyteller creating it in, in a vacuum and then saying, oh, I need to get some developers. They're kind of working together. So Tanya. Um, well, in LA, we definitely have the same problem, especially, obviously LA has a big number of independent filmmakers, a lot of uh, documentary filmmakers, and now there's this boom of the uh, Silicon Beach. So there are people who are doing the technology side, but we're trying to get them together early in the process too. And Liza Kelly. In, in Washington, D.C., the focus is generally on education and being more informed on immersive environments and uh, experiential um, uh, moments that can be created, whether it be in a museum or on in the physical world, the same as um, what Michael was saying in his city. Um, we have a lot more uh, opportunity for things to happen through social cause. Um, uh, social justice movement similar uh, to what we saw today um, and uh, it, it's it's not uh, as robust as some of these other communities um, because we are still dealing more with um, funding in the general area and having a general awareness of who the audience would be if you were to give that funding um, so that you can kind of see what the return would be on things. Um, but um, I work as uh, a new media instructor and I teach young writers and um, 
one of the things that we like to try to explore is, is, is how we can increase the digital literacy for uh, youth so that we are uh, creating a foundation for this medium to grow. Um, and uh, one of the other things we've been doing is working with universities in the area so that we can uh, create um, kind of mini consortium situations where we can have projects or ideations kind of come out of these universities um, so that uh, there's, they know that there is a platform that will support them um, as they are trying to grow. Excellent. So um, I'd also just like to let the audience know that um, we're not going to wait to take questions at the very end. So if you have questions, just feel free to raise your hand and um, we'll, we'll take them as they come. Um, I wanted to just toss this out there. Um, what are uh, some of the kind of more innovative projects that you're seeing kind of come out of your chapters or your areas? Well, one specifically that we have coming out of Washington, D.C. is Black Broadway, and it deals with the historic um, nature of U Street, which is kind of akin to Harlem uh, in, in the uh, 1930s and 40s. And um, it recreates these moments uh, through uh, live experience, uh, whether they recreate it in an actual space that is a historical landmark on uh, U Street, or if they actually have now, they, they've connected with uh, another group to, with, that's done an, um, an interactive mural with Paul Robeson. And um, they have Duke Ellington School of the Arts, which is on that same street right now. So they're all they're trying to incorporate more diversity within uh, transmedia and immersive uh, storytelling, as well as uh, increase the uh, avenues by which people can in, uh, engage with that um, on a uh, physical level instead of uh, a virtual level. Yeah, so in San Francisco, there's a similar project. Raise your hand if you've heard of the Jejun Institute. Good, wow, okay, good. Quite a few people. There was actually a documentary film made about it called The Institute. And that sort of came from the uh, alternate reality game ARG background of creating stories and game experiences that are literally all around you in the city. And so a follow-on to the Jejun Institute by the same creator, Jeff Hall, is called The House of Latitude. And it is a secret society, which I'm part of, and I can't say that much about the secret society, but I would say it has probably the most kick-ass real-world installation I've ever seen in my life uh, that, I, from what I gather, actually spreads to several sites throughout the city. And it does involve some mobile media and some technology involved in it, um, but more than anything, it's an interesting platform as far as uh, remuneration goes. They have very complex system where, where participants can buy things. And so they're, they're turning self-funded and looking to expand to other cities. The other thing I'd say that I think Mike's gonna go into a little bit more, has anybody heard of the Silent History, that project? Uh, it came out, good, yeah, it was a novel that was written in sections uh, for iPhone that also featured a location-based component to it. They have a follow-on, the team, uh, uh, Eli Horowitz, um, and, and his partner have a follow-on project called the Pickle Index, which is also going to be a written iPhone app, but it's gonna have a companion physical book that's gonna come out at the same time, and it deals with a sort of future carny society where pickles are extremely important. <laughs> Um, well, I want to talk about two projects. One is uh, Pry, which I don't know if any of you were here yesterday for their live performance. Uh, Pry, it's meant to say that it's redefining the ebook. I would actually say uh, it defines it. One of the creators, Danny, is uh, back there in the audience. Um, 
because it really uses the gestures of the iPad to navigate the experience. And it's very different from actually uh, the eBooks where you just recreate like turning pages. Uh, this is a really immersive experience. They have video, they have uh, very interesting things. If you haven't seen it, you can get the app. I'm not advertising it, but you know. Uh, you should, that's, that's very interesting. And the other one would be actually the project from uh, Kel O'Neill, who was the starter of Storyco Delay, um, which he and his wife are doing a VR documentary project on the last four rhinos. Uh, and it's gonna be like a five to six minute experience. Uh, They're doing the one rhino in San Diego and the three other rhinos in Kenya. So VR. VR, yes. I mean, it's virtual you know, reality, live action virtual reality. And it's it's the hot topic. And, you know, anyone that's gone to any of the festivals has waited in lines for the VR experiences. And it seems like every creator I know is making a VR project. Is it overblown? And, 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 or is it something that is like kind of um, the kind of the, the hottest thing in, in your chapters, you know? I would say that it's a hot topic, but it's also still something that people are curious about in DC. We do have meetups that are geared towards VR, and they're very popular. Um, now in the Smithsonian Museums, uh, which, are, which are free to attend, uh, which, is, which makes the audience greater for VR, um, they've got exhibits that incorporate it. So it is something that is picking up quite a bit in DC. So I, I was going to talk to a couple of the projects that are happening yeah, in Miami. And uh, for us as an organization, it's really important to um, present the regional voice of Florida because it's really not that hard. And if it is, you're hearing about Florida men or um, you know criminals and uh, Scarface, let's say. Um, so uh, for example, I'm sure m most of you know that um, we're not allowed to say climate change in Florida, um, it's at least it's especially on a government level. So it's really interesting um, to have creators that are uh, that are working within this environment. Uh, we had somebody who is not originally from Florida, but she made a documentary in Florida on the invasive lionfish, and we're going to present an immersive installation on it. Um, Florida is all about invasive species as well: pythons, lionfish, iguanas, you name it. Um, so we're going to present at Filmgate her an immersive documentary that she currently has on Mashable. So she she sold it to them after she made it, um, and we will add um, an kind of a communal element where there will be a tasting of the lionfish because one of the uh, action items that she wants is for people to like to for there to be an audience and a connoisseur of the lionfish so because people are the only uh, natural predators of that invasive species so in that respect it's an immersive documentary it was done in the keys and it has an actionable, Id actionable item that we were really interested in hopefully that will create a change um, and another spectra spectrum of uh, kind of the, the rainbow um, we have a really strong dance and classical music community in Miami um, so um, a lot of our projects are being underwritten by um, the grants, uh, grants, especially the Knight Foundation has been really active in Florida. Um, so um, they have this wonderful um, uh, initiative which is called the Arts Nights Challenge. Um, anybody can apply as long as it's a Florida story, Atlanta story, or New York story, and I think Detroit, there are a few different regions that they have it. Um, and uh, for example, last year, uh, one of the, uh, their grantees was a transmedia opera, and it was called Melancholaland, and it had opera, dance, 
film, video, and um, connect. So um, there was a lot of movement that was being trans translated through video game consoles. So that was really interesting and really cool. Yeah, I, um, I saw that performance and it was actually amazing. And uh, you know, I was talking to Deliana about it. And in, in New York, we have such a strong dance community that it would be great if there could be some type of an experience like that here in New York. Um, w one kind of common thread that I'm hearing is that, that events are becoming very important in these types of um, transmedia experiences. You know, when we think about developing these things, it's it's becoming not just a digital experience. Um, why why is that? Why why do you think events are becoming so, um, you know, a key part of these types of a you know these types of projects? I think it's partly our audiences. You know, that they are in front of screens all day, and so to have something that's live action that's a break from that at the end of the day is is nice for them. Um, the other thing that I've found, I, I'm personally working on a project that has a live component to it, similar to the project that was here where it's part video and part actors on stage in front of the video, is that um, many of these projects could kind of just be shipped off into a digital archive and maybe get some audience, but then kind of fall on the wayside. And when you have a live version of it, it allows you to be evergreen for much longer, I think, and to also what I think get that direct engagement mm -hmm. that especially these issues-based projects are looking for mm -hmm. uh, with, with real audiences and having real Q&A after. And I think uh, also I feel that now lines are being blurred. I can almost say um, it was uh, the people formerly called the audience and the people formerly called the subject and the people formerly called the creators and we are all starting converging into, hence convergence, um, we all converging into the space and collaborating and there's a lot of uh, blurred lines between them. So um, events invite all of us to be in that space mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. um, I also think it's part of the participatory experience. Mm -hmm. uh, in LA right now, and I'm totally gonna mispronounce that, um, there's a event that is gonna start in October called Hop Hopspot from the industry, which is this group that does op experimental opera. And they're gonna put people in limousines and drive them around the city to hear different parts of the opera. But you have to sign up for one particular uh, storyline. So what they're trying to do is get the audience to be a part of that point of view. Yeah, we've definitely noticed that any type of participatory storytelling, if you eventize the process, you're gonna get better content and, and more participation more participation so that's you know another aspect of, of why this is important Tanya could you tell us a little bit about the um, van the Beethoven oh, van okay. yes yeah, so there's this uh, project in Los Angeles that is called van Beethoven uh, what they're doing is uh, the LA Philharmonica has paired with um, secret location uh, which is this studio that just won an Emmy for the Sleepy Hollow second screen um, and they're gonna put, well, they are already doing this. There's a bus that is going around in LA uh, to different neighborhoods bringing, there's uh, I believe five or seven sets of uh, Oculus Rifts and they created an experience where you can listen to Beethoven and you can actually see the LA feel playing Beethoven and they did a sort of animation of the music uh, so the whole idea is to bring people who wouldn't necessarily go to the LA field, bring the music to them. And it also seems like it's a, it's a way for a VR experience to not just be solitary, right? You're experiencing it with other people, sort of like the doghouse, which is you know, one of the reasons why it's such an interesting experience. Speaking of cars, uh, our next presenter in San Francisco is presenting a project called 
The Headlands Gamble, uh, which you can look up. It is a kidnapping for you and a friend or partner uh, for a weekend, and it involves driving around in an antique Excalibur convertible and going to various sites, uh, finding clues to a crime. And I think they are sold out. Tickets run two to three thousand uh, dollars per couple, <laughs> and they've sold out throughout the summer. Wow, that's pretty amazing. So um, I wanted to ask you guys. Um, how are these projects getting funded, right? You know, there's that's one big challenge that creators have is, is funding our work, you know? And um, I just wanted to see kind of what your thoughts were on how, how these projects are being funded. I'll just toss that out to the group. Right now, um, you could go to our local film office, um, as well as there are arts grants that may support things like that, but you still have to make justification. It's not specific. Um, so it's not specific to immersive media? It's not, not at all. So there's still a lot that you have to um, negotiate in terms of, of that funding and because of the output and the experience that it has, uh, because you are doing something that is experimental that mm -hmm. maybe um, they're not fully aware of, like I said with the earlier, uh, whether or not the, the funding that you put towards it is going to have the impact. Mm -hmm. So in, in, I would say most of the funding we find is outside of the local area. Mm -hmm. um, I think some of it, it, it it's grants, right? Yep. Especially for nonfiction projects, because I think there's um, a desire to see some documentary on them. But for fiction, most of it is self-funded, or uh, a lot of people put their time on it. Uh, it's it's a bit difficult. In LA, what we're seeing is a lot of branded entertainment. So some creators sort of like will go to an agency and do some sort of second experience or something that comes with a brand, which, you know, as artists is not necessarily what we want, but they get to use the technology. So I know so they get to experiment. Yeah. So I know kind of a lot of filmmakers that will go into an agency like and help with these experiences to be able to play with it. We, we, every, I mean, everybody is discovering distribution and funding at the moment. The model is changing so quickly. Mm -hmm. um, um, so we have done it very grassroots. We've been very, uh, we've been, uh, we're talking to the city at the moment to create actual funds for um, immersive projects, and they're open to it. Um, we have invited WLRN and, and PBS, and you know those the usual uh, funders for these kind of experimental projects, especially in the documentary world, to come um, to Filmgate and hopefully um, fund certain projects as well. Um, ad agencies, we have, uh, we we had um, Fort Latin America be interested in a project that we brought to Filmgate last year. That they're bringing them back to um, Art Basel, which is the art um, um, collection that happens from this in December, uh, the art festival that happens in December, and they're underwriting his, um, he, um, the artist is from MIT Open, uh, open Doc. Open Doc Lab, and it's a, it's a sound-based um, project called Roundware. Um, so they're bringing him back, and um, he's creating a completely brand new project. And they're underwriting it without wanting any of the cars to be involved in any way. So mm -hmm. in that respect, they just want to be involved with a creative project. So that was really lucky for him and for us that it wasn't, you know, wasn't we didn't get branded with Ford Latin America, <laughs> um, you know. So, so I think uh, this is public information now that the um, House of Latitude has a really interesting crowdfunding model in that uh, basically you get, once you're in the society, you can buy other invitations 
to people to experience this for 30 bucks a pop. And it's basically a key card that they get to make an appointment and go into chapter one, which is this incredibly immersive building with digital and outdoor stories all around it. After that purchase, what they've done is offered up membership. And actually, I think they've had a very strong response to people who have that initial experience who then want to have more experiences becoming members for $30 a month. There's merchandise you can buy, too, that's kind of one-off things. You don't have to be a member. But they've gotten, I believe, hundreds of people who've signed up for this recurring membership. And even more than that, they're looking to expand to other cities with this model that they have to create more of these secret societies. And that, to me, is the most interesting funding model that I've seen. So, I mean, it's, it's almost kind of like the challenge is um, the funding isn't necessarily out there in all these grants and stuff. So that actually presents an opportunity for makers where they can sort of create their own business model. And that's what we're seeing with the, the, the folks, the House of Latitude. That's very exciting. Yes, please. This question was, what is the range of budgets for projects like these? Well, I mean, that's an, a really interesting question. Um, and they really do range from like zero dollars to uh, like the Fort McMoney project was like a million dollar project um, that was done in coordination with the New York yeah. Times and the NFB. I mean, it really all depends upon what you're trying to do. But one thing that we're also seeing is uh, creators using um, more kind of off-the-shelf platforms and tools. So there are interactive documentaries that are being made where they're not going and having to hire an interactive agency to create a lot of custom complex interactivity. They're using off-the-shelf functionality where basically a filmmaker can kind of pretty much do a lot of that stuff themselves and maybe bring a freelance developer in for like a week. And I will say in our community that that is a lot of what we tend to do with our nonprofits because they don't have the budgets. They, they, it's not even a, a, an option for us to come to them and say uh, anything more than fifteen to twenty thousand dollars. That's still a lot, mm -hmm. even you know, for them. If, even if though it may have great impact, but it's it's more or less like you're giving them an opportunity to um, see that they could maybe do something on a smaller level with interlude mm -hmm. or uh, with conductor um, than they could maybe if they had to go and hire a whole team. I mean, I'm seeing basically just two tiers, and I don't know about you guys, but I'm seeing like the handful of people that usually become our presenters are working with budgets in the six figures, sometimes up to a million dollars like House of Latitude. And then I'm seeing a bunch of people maybe get a grant. But you know, the grant is like, like you're sort of saying, like maybe five, 10, 15K, and they're just doing it. And some of those projects are great, but I'm seeing very little like mid-tier, and I'm seeing very little like repeatability. You know, it seems like a lot of one-offs. Are there any other trends that we, we kind of want to surface? Well, like I said, there's the trend with um, in VR and headsets and, um, like right now, um, people are just kind of grasping augmented reality and it's like everything that's like kind of not new anymore that, that should be commonplace is just now like, ooh, <laughs> in the district, which is great because that means you got more people who could possibly get funding towards it now having the experience. But the most, the, the, the thing that I found um, uh, great about uh, VR is just, it's it's knowing that you're you are a participant, mm. you know, and knowing now it's not. I'm not saying hey, watch a film, because the con the conversation always turns back. But isn't this a film, or is this just the animation? <laughs> right. You know, but it gives people that opportunity to see it in a different way. I uh, see. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> 
Um, I see that I'll, um, it seems that the uh, young adult or even on the younger scale um, television um, productions are getting interested in that space. So let's say Nickelodeon, um, especially in Latin America, is really active and in, in introducing um, immersive elements. And it, it makes sense because, you know, that, you know, that everybody um, that's a millennial and younger is grow growing up in this environment. It's completely native to them. So that's what they're expecting is one of the things that I've seen. And um, I'll give it back to you and then I'll go back. <laughs> well, I, I was going to piggyback a little bit of what you were saying. Definitely, especially Hollywood, uh, the whole second sc screen experience is super hot right now. If you're releasing a TV show, movie, or even uh, an exhibition in a museum, everybody wants to make sure there's some sort of component with social media or v even like a small VR experience or an interactive web page. Like they realize that it's really important that there's like an interactive experience attached to it. And, and Tanya, is this is the content that's part of these additional experiences? Is it extra story or is it kind of like DVD extras? No, no, it's it, a lot of it. It's definitely uh, ex not just extra, but it's enriching. It's deeper story. It's, it's deeper story. So that's yes. that's really exciting. Yeah, that is exciting. Yeah. Yes. One thing I'm hearing too that's nice about the VR revolution is that it seems like this wave of new technology is very sensitive to story first. I mean, there's been a bunch of failures where it's kind of like, I'm just kind of walking around an environment and then the, the projects that people want to do seem to have more of a narrative arc. And so we're getting VR companies coming to us and saying like, hey, we realize it's not just about walking around and looking at dinosaurs. It's about getting involved, even if it's a two to three minute narrative arc we need help with that, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. which I find nice and different from other mm -hmm. phases. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And we were recently approached by Fusion, which is, um, um, I guess, ABC and Univision got together and created a, um, a television station that is supposed to speak to um, English-speaking um, sp Spanish um, descendants in, uh, in, in the US. Um, and they want to create an immersive and attract, uh, an immersive media department um, and but they're lacking content, so they approached us and they said, you know, can you please pitch us any content, you know, whatever you have, mm. because they they kind of staked their territory as a millennial station, but they don't have the content to actually support it yet. So there are there are lots of opportunities for storytellers in the space, and it's a matter of uh, finding them and being creative in, in how you're conceiving of the stories, and then you know also being open to partnering with technologists you know, to create those stories, right? I mean, that, that's, that's very promising for storytellers, right? I, w I would think so. Yeah, definitely, story, story is always gonna be first. Mm -hmm. And like, even uh, we were talking about earlier, some of the big BR companies right now, like Jaunt, mm -hmm. they are looking for content. Mm -hmm. um, they, are, they are reaching out to sort of the more like top level uh, filmmakers, but hopefully, you know, they're gonna open that to independent filmmakers too. Excellent. I hope. Yes. This question was, are there any examples of immersive platforms that monetize themselves? Um, I mean, I can think that the, the House of Latitude is a great example. I mean, that's an example of uh, creators that are kind of um, drawing on the success of a previous project and carrying that audience over to their next project, but enhancing it through uh, word of mouth and marketing. Um, but even I would look at a company like Verse, which is a new... Um, VR production company, VRSE. It's Aaron Koblenz and Chris Melk, and they've—they're um, not just creating new VR content. They're actually 
releasing an app that the content is distributed through. So they're kind of creating a new distribution channel at, that they own. So as content creators, they're not just making the thing, they're owning the pipe that the content gets distributed on. Um, that's something that has never really, you know, that's rarely done uh, that, that creators can actually own that distribution channel. So there are opportunities for creative people to to monetize things. It's just that the, the kind of, mar the, the business models aren't kind of for us to just follow. We have to kind of make them. And that... Do you see projects like the Pickle Index that's going to simultaneously release a print book along with the mobile app? And both of those will be sold. And so I think it's mm -hmm. also that leaning on a traditional media piece that has an easier marketplace that will supposedly pump up the marketplace for your newer media. Right, or, or a media right that has like an existing channel of distribution so you can get audience. And once you have that audience, they go, oh, wow, there's an app. Let's get that, you know. Uh, are there any other questions? Yes. This question was, for the Pickle Index, what was the time frame from conception to completion? Two years. Yeah, it's been two years since they released uh, Silent History. So, um, I mean, these projects can take anywhere from uh, three months to five years. It all depends on, you know, uh, how, how many hours you're putting into it. Yes. So the question is about working with nonprofits and museums. Okay. And I think that's geared for Kelly. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, that's generally what our audience is. Um, we have educators, we have artists, activists, um, and with the museums, we have the museums come in and, and exhibit with us. Specifically, we've had the Smithsonian Latino Virtual Museum come in and exhibit for their uh, Dia de los Muertos, Day of the Dead celebration that they have. Uh, annually, and um, they try to work in conjunction with the um, National American Indian Museum. Then they have a, a about two, a two to three day celebration, and that is real, but they connect that with the virtual. And um, it's, a, it's an opportunity for those who don't know what this virtual experience is to have an entryway. Um, and they create educational tools so that um, educators could take these, if they had, if they had students come in for uh, this museum exhibition, that they could come away with the tools. Um, in addition to Smithsonian, um, other uh, nonprofits that we've had come in are looking for ways to create participation within their audience. Um, they're looking for ways to connect the audience directly with the, the, the issue. Um, and so um, they've been trying to look for ways that while they, they have a VR or, or an immersive experience that may take place, they still want people to come in contact so that an event would still be necessary in order to put people um, in face-to-face -face contact. Um, with those that would be most affected. And I would add to that too that the hot thing for museums and for media companies are millennials. They all want to capture millennial audiences because that's the future of their membership. Mm -hmm. And so I'm finding at least with museums, you're going to get two tiers again. I think you're going to find the larger museums who have their own funding and will create these projects kind of off the bat. And then the smaller ones will say, hey, let's go for a grant. And groups like the National Endowment for Humanities are funding, they have a million and a half dollars to fund digital projects this year. Excellent. Yep. So the question is, is you know, these immersive experiences, are we trying to throw too much experience into it? Is well, that I think a that's just like, you could ask that same question about a film, you know, when you throw too much into a film <laughs> or a song, you know, any type of media that you're creating, if you have story at the foundation, um, I think that's what's going to decide whether or not you're 
you're saying too much or absolutely just enough for the audience to be able to move move through the process. Well, and, but, yeah. and, and one of the hardest parts about a film is editing that stuff yes. out. So as an immersive creator, it's about editing and streamlining and simplifying it to the core essence. And I think it's also a thing, the needs of your story. If your story doesn't need VR, your characters don't live in a VR world, don't do VR. You know, if you have a story where only part of it can be told in film, and there's just some component that really needs to get out in a location-based way, or you figure out a way to do print, you think print will help, do other platforms, but don't do it just because it's hot. Yeah, we have, uh, we have um, uh, an immersive theater company called Dog and Pony, and they always have uh, an immersive component with um, a fourth, uh, they have a fourth member of the troupe, which is actually their social channels. And so they actually allow for the audience that whether you are live there or virtual, you can interact with what's happening in the theater scene. And they, they, they do lots of rehearsals to try to figure out um, all the, the ways that you can bring the audience into a situation like that where they know they can be responding. But that's, they have one element instead of it have, having uh, multiple elements. Um, and so, I mean, it depends. It depends upon uh, what your goals are set for uh, why, why you're creating this story. I think that's probably a nice transition into our slide. <laughs> our, uh, our deck was two slides. <laughs> um, so one of the things we do at StoryCode is we try to uh, help, you know, share information. And so Michael and I uh, interviewed some of the kind of really inspiring uh, immersive media creators, folks like Elaine Sheldon, Lance Weiler, um, Theo Epstein, uh, the creators of The Silent History, and we created the, um, we basically released a, a best practices report. So this is, you know, um, uh, available for free on storycode.org. If you sign up for the mailing list, you'll get these types of uh, uh, reports and updates on new projects that you should be aware of. But specifically, the best practices report really kind of tries to take a look at what are some of the best practices that are being developed in these projects. And they're fascinating. You know, things like, and we even found out from the previous presentation that like, you know, the bulk of your audience is going to experience your online interactive document for documentary for five minutes. Okay, so they might come back again, but in that one sitting, they're going to be there for five minutes if you're lucky. So you need to start to think about how to craft that story in a way that they can get that arc in five minutes. Um, there are other items, you know, things like live events, participatory storytelling, that the report talks about, but I would definitely encourage you to check that out. So I think we have to wrap things up, but we have time for one more question, if there is one. Was there one? Yes? Anyone? Anyone? All right. This question was, how do you think geolocation technology will enhance or change immersive storytelling? I mean, I think one of the biggest immersive games out there is put out by uh, Google's Niantic Lab mm -hmm. uh, In called Ingress. Yeah. yeah, and that's got massive player adoption, but that's because they have a very large platform and marketing reach. Uh, there's another group called Detour.com that we've had present. Uh, and they do walking tours that are audio guided, almost like a This American Life for specific places. To be honest, I think there's a huge, huge economic issue behind those. Because what you're doing is you're reducing digital media to be experienced in specific places. In fact, Detour kind of locks out its content unless you get there. And so it's, gonna, it's yet to remain seen if somebody's really gonna be able to massively monetize 
on experiences that are that are location based. That said, I'm a huge fan of it, and I think there's an appetite for it. I think it's we're at an amazing point where in our pockets we carry incredibly high fidelity, well built machines that can deliver story, and and unlike any other platform, those stories can be aware of where you are when you're receiving them. So I think there's enormous promise to that that combination. Excellent. Well, uh, I just want to thank uh, Kelly, Tanya, Diliana, and Michael, and uh, thank you, audience. We really appreciate it. Thank you. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.